Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Warfighter Podcast with myself, Colin Hillier, and Tom Constable. Hello, Tom. Morning, mate. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm almost recovered. I was going to say, a lot of people I know that went to IITSEC basically just came back with COVID and they've been like out of action for the last week. So, I mean, how are you feeling? I, I'm concerned. No, I, I wasn't ill. I mean, you know, between not myself, but various lost luggages and generally being, <laughs> is it hungover or jet lag or both? Not me, of course, but other people. You know, mm-hmm. it's an exhausting week, but a successful week. Successful for you? You got a lot of good conversations? Yes, yes but I'll tell you something that was both nice to hear, but annoying. I did no less than three briefings on our little startup. And at the end, you know, the comment was, um, nice podcast, by the way. And that was like, I wasn't briefing about the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, credit to the Wolfhide podcast. Good Give coverage. it time, Colin. You two may get as big as this, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yet again, I feel bad because I'm there sort of being the face of it all. And there's Tom, who, let's be clear, does well over 50% of the work for this. <laughs> all the hard work is Tom. I'm, I'm just the face and the voice. That's just, that is not, that's not true. I mean, a little bit true, but not quite, you know, <laughs> you are a crucial element to this, Colin. Don't get it. Really? Uh, speaking of people that had a good time, apparently, over at IITSEC is our sponsors for the podcast. Babcock recently spoke to Matt Tutor, who's, who's basically our advocate within Babcock. He's the campaign director for CTTP or ACTS, Army Collective Training Program. No, ACTS. That, that is the new. Um, yeah, no, he was saying that actually pretty much echoing what you said, some amazing conversations. The conversation went down in terms of the way that they were presenting it really nicely with their clients and partners. And they've also revamped their website recently, Colin. I don't know if you've seen it. Looks much better. It does it. Thanks, mate. It's on team-crucible.co.uk. And they've kind of they've elaborated on the value proposition there. A load of their thought leadership goes there and news updates go there. And most importantly, they list the Wolfire podcast on their website as well, mate. Just saying. Well, you know, every little bit helps. <laughs> I think we could jump straight into this interview. I think it's particularly interesting and fairly pertinent. We cover a whole host of topics, and I'll let you introduce the guest in a second, Colin. But one of the things only recently popped up on my feed is that there's the first ever recorded air drone on ground drone battle. I mean, it wasn't much of a battle. There's an FPV drone flew into a Russian ground drone that was, that was trying to re- rearm a forward line. But it was first ever recorded that. And I think that's very pertinent. Uh, later on in the interview, we talk about drones and specifically the rise of AI within drone and the ethics and the threats associated with that, which I think is quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it was inevitable, wasn't it? Well, the next thing, you'll arm the ground drone, then you'll, you know, it just all escalates from there. So uh-huh. I think some of this... And it's also interesting that, as you mentioned it, the EU just published their um, new rules on AI. And you read that and then you go, but for defense applications, there's going to need to be some exceptions because if your adversaries are deploying it however they wish, then how are you going to counter that? It's a really interesting problem, which we do, as you say, we discuss it in this episode. Yeah. Um, Would like to introduce the guest? So look, full disclosure, the guest for this week is Pete Morrison. Now I've known Pete for, it makes me feel old, probably coming on 15 years. And Pete's very interesting because he's got his core job but he has lots of diverse interests. It's always fascinating to have a pint with Pete. Yeah, because Pete's in corporate mode a lot of the time when working. <laughs> and then when he's down the pub, he's actually quite a great thinker. So this is an opportunity to dive into the mind of Pete Morrison. If you don't know about Pete, he's really there at the early stages of repurposing gaming, you know, gaming technologies into defense. Uh, lots of people have tried and some have been sources successful and others, but 
I think, fair to say that Bohemia have been more successful than others. I thought it was really good to talk to him about how he sees virtual technologies developing and where can we go from now? Is this it or is there more to come? Here it is. Hello, Pete Morrison. Hello, Colin. It's great to have you on the podcast. Now, you and I go back a while, but frankly, we've only just seen each other in passing and I don't really know what you've been up to the past few years, just vaguely. But for those that don't know you, can you just give us a bit of an intro to your background and involvement in training simulation in the last, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so? 15, 20 years, yeah, a, a long time. Well, I, I definitely have less hair now and it's more grey than last time I saw you in person. But yeah, I have been working for Bohemia Interactive Simulation for almost 20 years. Before I worked for BI Sim, I was in the army. And before that, I somehow weaseled my way through a computer science degree. So yes, I have had a fairly long history at this point playing computer games and modifying computer games to be suitable for training soldiers. And it's something that I'm really passionate about. I've had a really, I think, blessed career and I'm still working for BI Sim and still really enjoying, enjoying the work. And so we'll go into that a bit because that's quite quite interesting, but it's safe to say that you are one, I know there were others, of the early proponents of repurposing computer games, Call of Duty type things into military training. Could you just give us a bit of a, I don't know, potted history of how we got to where we are? Yeah, it's very interesting because we saw three military organisations closely followed by the UK but you were not one of the first, who saw the potential of computer games. And from an Australian perspective, there was a gentleman by the name of Rob Carpenter, who was my boss in the army for a couple of years and now works for BISM in Australia. He commissioned a study, I guess it was 2001 or 2002, to look at a wide range of computer games, Jane's Fleet Command, Steel Beasts, and many more, and try to understand where in the training continuum they would fit from command and staff training all the way down to individual training. So within Australia, that was one of the first studies that were done. I became involved initially in 2001. I did a demonstration using a computer game called Operation Flashpoint for the chief of the army at the time when I was a, uh, a cadet. But actually, I think it was a lieutenant working uh, on my honors degree. And then I was involved on the army side, implementing the first versions of VBS-1. And then we did a number of studies in Australia, really culminated in the Virtual Immersive Combat Environment Study of 2004, which effectively proved that computer games could be used to train soldiers in many different things from convoy training through to cognitive learning and, and many more. So then in 2005, Iraq happened and we used the computer game very effectively to train the soldiers and that really proved the effectiveness of this tool. At the same time, the US Army were investing in a program called Dar Wars Ambush and the US Marine Corps actually were investing in BBS-1 as well. And then the UK came on I think in 2005, 2006, and, and the rest is history. And the software is now used in over 60 countries. We've seen entire army cultures accept computer games for training. It's one of my proudest achievements. I used to be counseled by the old gray beards back in the day. Don't talk about computer games. Don't talk about computer games. And I uh, would always ignore them. And today I can say computer game for training and, and not get laughed at, which is nice. I remember a certain brigadier who said, we're not going to talk about games games make it trivialize and and now i think certainly back then we had to justify it where to fight for it but would you say now it's a given 
you know, repurposing whatever it may be, whether it's an Unreal Engine or uh, another game or VBS, is it now that's accepted? Yeah, we're doing that now. Which flavor are we going for? It's certainly a given in all of the Western militaries. I mean, let's say all the NATO and NATO member countries, it's a given. And then in many countries in South America, it's a given. There's still not enough studies proving when computer games should be used in training. This still very subjective but there's broad acceptance that reduces the need for live training or reduces the number of mistakes you make in the field and therefore leads to more effective and efficient training. There have been a couple of studies over the years, but nothing broad. I would like to see something more broad. What we see acceptance in the culture of the tech, we unfortunately, and this is where I'm going to start complaining, I still see simulation get cut from budgets too early. And I think that's a real mistake. And that, that is pretty much universal. I still don't know why that is. And, and I think it's linked to the lack of evidence. If, if we could prove that we could train certain things in the computer game and not need to do as much field training, then maybe simulation wouldn't be cut from budgets so early. But we are beginning to see that change. Yeah, I mean, some of the benefits of using, let's say, off-the-shelf technology is actually it, sometimes it was the only way. So when we had to deliver things cheaper, faster, better, it was all we had, right? And I wonder if that's done some harm and it's always seen as, oh, that's the cut price thing as opposed to actually that's the best thing. Yeah, so I, I use the example of flight simulation versus computer games for training. And an image generator for flight simulation can sell for $30,000 per channel. The same tech really as the computer game might have, it uses the same kinds of graphics cards, it uses the same rendering technology, but if it has to be installed on a desktop gaming PC, then it shouldn't cost more than a couple of thousand dollars and don't even begin to talk about subscription pricing. So there's still this disconnect, I think, of what an understanding of value or a misunderstanding of value. I can tell you we are investing in our computer game for training as much as that $30,000 image generator is being invested in by its developer. It'll change over time, but uh, it's taking some time. I could just tell you that anecdotally from my time during officer training at Sanders in 2012, one of the most memorable training serials that we did, and we only went there once for the whole year, and it was going into the, there's an ops room scenario that was built in one of the CIS wings, which is the computer wing at the time, where they'd converted it to look like an ops room. And we had the troops exercising next door on the computers, and then we had the ops room who were doing the ops room roles as officer cadets. And that was the time when I got my heart rate up. I really felt like I was actually getting some really valuable training. And not only that, people were enjoying what they were doing. It was something out of the ordinary. It was, we were bringing in helicopters. We're doing all these things that officer cadets never get to do. And frustratingly and bizarrely, you know, that is one of the key training serials that I remember clearly. And we only got to do that once for a whole year at Sandhurst. And I found it absolutely bizarre. It is bizarre, but it's changing, albeit slowly. West Point, for example, they use computer games for training, everything from navigation training up to learning how platoon attack works. So we're beginning to see officer academies around the world embrace the tech. And it just takes time. It takes time to train the instructors who are typically older people who may not play computer games at home, who want to go out into the field. There's many reasons why humans want to go into the field. But yeah, over, over 20 years, I've seen a steady acceptance and stories like yours sort of becoming very common occurrence. And I'm very proud to play a role in that. I mean, it's interesting to hear you speak and it felt like a fight back then and it sounds like the fight's not over. We've got to keep working. It's not even whether you're a proponent of games in training. It's saying, look, here's a technology. How do we use it? Have it become just another tool, you know, on our toolbox? Exactly right. And ultimately, military organizations are massive bureaucracies and it just takes time. And every now and then there is a step change that 
forces the military to move. And I think with computer games and training, that's what happened. It was so obvious that this technology was innovative and could help. And there was this tremendous user demand. You know, if I could think about our experience selling into the military, it was all about going into battle sim centers, talking to the people that were training the soldiers and here is technology that can make, make your life easier. So it was very pragmatic. That's a, a, an important lesson, I think, for new businesses that are trying to break into the space. You, you need these champions, the user proponents that really do push your technology up because the big businesses have the top level lockdown, right? So, you know, in the US, there's a strong lobbying effort almost exclusively by big defense contractors that can act as a gate. But you can get around them. Sometimes you can work with them. But it's really important to identify, I think, that particular avenue of success that Bohemia took. I think we're going to get on to some of the challenges that we see. We've got a little set of questions we worked out. But if we may, a slight diversion. I'm really interested, see, I followed Bohemia from the early days when I was working there. Not How is it when you're part of a large firm and how are things changing? Do you feel you're still able to deliver the innovation, for example, or do you have still freedom of movement? And I know this could be a bit political, but you know, what, so, what, so, what is it like? What's changed? And so this is just to clear up, this is the uh, being interactive, being acquired by BAE. Yeah, we, yeah. Okay. yeah, correct. I, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that we never looked back since you left, Colin. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> we never got better. I know. <laughs> uh, and, and for those listening, I, I think it's worth giving a bit of context. Like Colin was central to us forming our UK business back in the day. So we do appreciate Colin's contribution to Bohemian Interactive. <laughs> And we've gone through two exits. And for those out there that are aware of how startups work, you kind of see the startup, you get a bit of initial funding, and then you usually sell to venture capital or private equity. And then typically there'll either be another private equity round or you would sell the business to a strategic investor. So Bohemia, we sold to private equity in 2012. We were owned by the Riverside Company. They heavily invested in us. We went from 75 to about 415 human beings working for the business. And then last year, we sold the business to BAE Systems Inc., which is the US branch of BAE, which was a really fantastic outcome. So as far as a growth story is concerned, Bohemia Interactive has had a really sweet ride. The transition has been, I guess, as expected. There are various regulations that have to flow down. And you know, one of the examples there is... We can't just go and do business in any country on earth. We never really did work in China or, or places like that, but there are various rules with regards to who you can sell to. And it doesn't mean you really can't sell there. It just means that you need to go through more gates. And these gates are there for good reason. So the way I explain it to our business developers is that this is, this is actually all good. Yes, it's a little bit more paperwork, but the reason we're doing it is very good. So yes, there's been a bit more bureaucracy, but by and large, BAE has been quite good at kind of protecting us from that. And overnight, we went from having kind of our 20 business developers or whatever we have to having this massive sales team, you know, worldwide, worldwide sales team. We've been able to collaborate with BAE working on what they call synergies. So where can VBS be sold into BAE and you know where can we take some of the BAE tech? We actually got wrapped up within a broader BAE product group. So we're there with Pitch, who makes HLA and Disc Gateways and, and a lot more. We're working with Wargaming staff as well. And so it's very interesting taking these different businesses and strategizing how to kind of bring them together, which is really quite exciting. So it's just the next stage of our growth. We maintain our independence. We keep working with other integrators. So BAE haven't kind of made us exclusive or anything like that. And, and the business is still running quite independently. So I'd say overall, it's been very positive and we're really just getting started on the integration. 
you know, so we're one year in, but yeah, so far so good. Good. Here's the most important litmus test of them all. Uh, have you had to get sign off to come on the podcast? I probably should have. <laughs> Brilliant. I only ask out of personal interest, really, but I think one of the things I observe is the skill as you grow from two guys, whatever, 10 guys in a shed to larger company and then a, a smaller unit with a very large company is you've got to be flexible. You've got to change. You can't be like you were 10 years ago. That won't work. So you've adapted. And that's really interesting because there's certainly cases where people haven't been able to do that and they failed. So yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah, we've got a, a really strong team, a strong leadership team, lots of delegated authority now. And when I speak to the other executives, I mean, we're, we're enjoying our jobs. So I, I love getting up in the morning getting in front of my computer and seeing what the developers have built. And you know, the sprint reviews are my favorite time. Every two weeks, looking at all this new tech, we have a big tech team, almost 300 people uh, working on new technology. And uh, it's, it's really exciting. Just on a personal level, I'm glad to hear that you look forward to the Mondays. And I think we all need to do that. I know Tom does. Uh, away from the family. <laughs> get away from the family. So that does neatly lead us on to sort of the next question I had, which is, where we are with this technology, do you feel we can actually innovate in games technology or are we doing the same thing? And I think one of the things we're talking about setting this up is how do we get a level playing field for new technologies? What's your thoughts on that? Do you think do you think we've done everything? Do you think there's lots more to do in games? I believe that the most important thing that military organizations can do is hire young people who work directly for the military in game studios and they are really important because they know the technology you know they know unreal they know unity in some cases they know vbs and really quickly they can modify these technologies to meet kind of new and emerging requirements and when i go to the countries that are doing that for example we were just in finland and that's exactly what they have you know, they have conscription in Finland, so it's a bit easier for them. But there was a room full of incredibly talented software engineers, all in uniform, building kind of wonderful new technology and, and doing it really quickly and, you know, at taxpayer expense. But And what I saw there was a lot of innovation. That's really my point. And militaries need to figure out kind of where the contractors kind of end and where, where military staff begin. I mean, I remember selling VBS into the US Marine Corps and sell, the core of the sales pitch was, you don't need to pay a contractor to build scenarios. Because I'd just been doing it in Australia and I was a military guy. You can have military people building scenarios in this tool the same day as the training. You don't need to go and pay a contractor and have a six-month kind of delivery time. And there was kind of acceptance that, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, soldiers and Marines can actually do a lot. And so I do think that we need more game developers flowing directly into the ranks of the military or working as direct support contractors for the military because that's just going to increase flexibility. I think that on the technology side, the military needs really smart architects who probably come from industry, but can take a step back and rather than say, well, I really love Unreal or I really love Unity and pick an engine, what they should be doing is abstracting away from the engine and designing an architecture where the core technologies, the artificial intelligence, the physics is separate from the rendering. And then you can build plugins for the engine that you like at the moment or the engine for which you've got a really sweet licensing deal. And then your core technologies have been abstracted away and can be reused in the future. But this is incredibly difficult architecture design. Now, at Bohemia, we're trying to do just this. Bohemia's future is about technology that works in multiple rendering engines. Now, VBS is still competing in my mind uh, quite well, noting that VBS is an application. Unreal and Unity are engines. You need to build the application. Will VBS still be competing 20 years from now? I'm not sure that's a bet that I would take. So our new artificial intelligence is designed outside of 
the rendering engine, in fact, outside of the simulation engine. And so when I look at US Army STI, a synthetic training environment, they're trying to do something similar. They're building web services for their ballistics and their physics and so on that run on the architecture. And you can kind of switch in and out the rendering engine. The terrain pipeline is quite abstracted as well. So yes, innovation, there's huge room for innovation, but it's not innovation that's kind of locked down to a single engine, I guess is my point. And future-proofing these architectures needs to be a, a big part of the thinking of kind of all modern militaries. Did, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that answers the second part. If you do the architecture right and make it more, I mean, I guess there's nothing new, but as you say, it takes time and effort to do it right. That means that when someone comes up with, hey, here's a new technology, here's new, whatever it is, AI or something that's really cool, you're not having to integrate it into the engine. It can sit alongside and plug it in. Is that what you're yeah, yeah that's, that's correct. And it's an evolution in terms of thinking. So US Army OneSAF is a great example, you know, multi-billion dollar program that I think they're actually competing again. And you know, everything you do for that is for OneSAF, right? So it's a OneSAF behavior, it's OneSAF this and that. And I mean, we know the cost of technical debt. We have had to port our simulation engine from the old VBS3 renderer to the new VBS Blue renderer. And I mean, it took five years. It took a lot of money and a lot of time. And I, I generally think the military needs to get smarter in how software technology works. And the danger of relying on an integrator is that they will want that to come back to them. So you're not going to get an open architecture just because you pay an integrator a lot of money either. So the military does need to spend a lot of money on trusted third parties with really smart people taking one step back and thinking, how is my software architecture going to support me for the next 20 years? Otherwise, they're going to be faced with incredibly expensive recompetes and rebuilds from now until forever. And so that's important. So yeah, I would, I would encourage militaries to think about it that way. So yes, there's a lot of room for innovation, but it's not necessarily like improved rendering technology, improved lighting, improved physics. A lot of that has been solved. I can give you a computer game with physics that looks 100% realistic. I mean, if you've played Starfield, right? <laughs> the, the physics technology in these new computer games is fantastic. And it's generally built upon trusted middleware. Those aren't the problems. They're architectural problems that need to be solved. Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear you say that because maybe earlier on we're, we're selling it on being flashier, shinier, looking better, but, but actually we've got to the point where it's as good as it needs to be. So what are the long, long-term long sort of infrastructure stuff? And I, I know lots of capabilities that were built into games that then the next version they get deprecated. You can't use them anymore. I guess that's what you're talking about. So what you, what you invested it, you got long-term as opposed to yeah, you want to insulate yourself from these types of changes. And I've given entire briefs on how graphics don't matter for the vast majority of cognitive learning use cases. I mean, I always say I could train a platoon of soldiers how to do a platoon attack in Minecraft. And any more fidelity than what you need for the specific training task is a waste of money. So paying for beautiful textures and beautiful 3D art assets, I mean, at best, it makes no difference. At worst, it's harmful because it's distracting the soldiers from what they need to be learning. So... Any money I spend on graphics is largely marketing to compete with the marketing from other engines. It's an interesting point there, Pete, because I think that one of my favorite sayings is alliness saves lives. Uh, you know, it's a British military term about getting Gucci kit, getting good kits, got the right brand on it. Soldiers feel like they're soldiers or feel like they've got the, they're being invested in. So I agree with what you're saying in terms of if you drop it down to a binary point, I think you're probably right. There is a, there is a soft value in having a graphics where the soldiers go, oh, rightly or wrongly, they've invested in this and it looks good. It looks like something I've been playing with in my spare time. Therefore, I feel like the machine 
machine or the military machine has invested in this and therefore I'm going to engage in this training serial probably 5% more potentially. Now that's just my opinion. I have no quantifiable data, but that's kind of my thoughts on that. Perhaps. And <laughs> someone someone should come up with a quantifiable data because, I mean, it could go either way. You could prove emphatically that having the latest and greatest graphics and even physics don't matter for cognitive learning. So cognitive learning, it's how to think training, you know, how to conduct an ambush. What are the mistakes you can make when conducting an ambush? Do the graphics matter for that? The vast majority of that is thinking, Agreed. not doing. You know, So for example, if the military were to study this and prove that it wasn't required, then all of a sudden they could focus money on on the most important aspects of this of this tech. And, and that's the biggest issue with games for training. We've spoken about the positives is that it's a lot of people like you and me who are getting excited about technologies that probably don't actually help train soldiers. And that's endlessly frustrating. But there is that difference in this scientifically proof something in a, sci- in a lab and then there's put a bunch of really bored squaddies in a room. And- you should do it with the squaddies. There's no doubt. But I remember when I was training soldiers, I mean, we had this one exercise we were doing, incredibly boring. This is actually 2003. We're using Operation Flashpoint. We weren't even using VBS. And we had to do 330 runs of different squad structures. We were testing for the Australian Army, eight, nine, and I think 12 or 13 person structures for infantry. And it was just the same scenario over and over again. These soldiers were bored out of their brains. But there was a sergeant with a big stick. And if any of them fell asleep, if any of them weren't paying attention, if any of them were playing around, they got you know, hit with a stick. And yeah, so I, I tend to discount these arguments about soldiers needing to be kind of immersed and it has to be graphically entertaining because soldiers are incredibly professional and, you know, they're there for a really good reason, especially today's soldiers. Most of them are vets. You know, anyone over kind of 25 has gone to war. So it's, it's a different culture. So anyway, I don't mean to take a contrarian point of view, but it's certainly interesting and should be studied. Yeah, and, and ditto. You know, it's just different viewpoints. I don't think yeah, I don't think important. I'm right at all. It's just it's just certainly just from my and again, it's, we're all informed by our own experiences as well. Yeah. So. yeah, just moving the discussion on a bit. So we've done training. Where do you see this technology adding value in the future? So certainly, the move to operations and support to operations for Bohemia Interactive for our company, it's just a logical next step. So we're doing a lot of work on terrain with regards to. I mean, honestly, it's a little bit boring, kind of back-end processing and conflation of terrain data to deliver the highest fidelity terrain we can to our users. And we all know what drones are capable of. You can fly a drone, do a 3D capture of the terrain. You know, we are the guys and girls that make that terrain simulatable. You know, we can take this ultra-high fidelity 3D data and we can run AI around that terrain and enable physics interactions on that terrain and we can render that terrain in Unreal Unity or VBS. So... That's the first place that I see our company going with regards to support, support to operations. Uh, the area that I'm incredibly interested in right now is drone operations. And we're all seeing the, frankly, terrifying videos coming out of Ukraine. We're seeing kamikaze first-person drones from multiple perspectives. As a former soldier, is incredibly terrifying to me. So how do you actually fly the kamikaze drone, but how do you defend against it? Do we need to literally give all of our soldiers big metal shields that they put up if they have to go to sleep so they don't get a, like a bomb dropped on their head. And even that question right there is something that should be tested right now. <laughs> and again, for training is the perf- perfect place to test it. And then, of course, we have to talk about the machine learning that will inform fully autonomous drones. And this is a very contentious point, and various governments have taken various stances. But I believe it's fact that our adversaries in the very near future will have fully autonomous drones and they don't really care if they're always making a 100% correct decision to kill. And that's a huge problem. 
And if you think about it like this, if the Western forces have made a decision that well, there'll be no autonomous drones on the battlefield, it's one-to-one, one soldier controlling one drone. But if our adversary has fully embraced autonomous drones, it could be one soldier controlling a thousand drones. And this is the problem that Western militaries need to grapple with. And I'm not sure how it's going to kind of play out. So that's a really interesting, I think, problem right now. And you know, within Bohemia, you know, what can we do? We're providing a platform to test and practice these types of new doctrines. So this is something which I know is in the, it's certainly at the front of mind across a lot of the MODs and the sort of research scientists' use. And it can, it's, it's, it's a capability that's always been there, but suddenly they woke up and go, we really need to make more of it in the test and evaluation sphere. So as you say, it's really difficult to test this sort of stuff in the real world. But if you can make the virtual dojo large environment that's complex enough, you can understand how you might use them, how you might fight with them, how you might, uh, what their limitations are. Bear in mind all this AI now needs to be trained like a human, but you're training machines. Yeah, and computer games are perfect for this. And this is where graphics do matter. So you can delete everything that I said previously when it comes to this particular use case. We have a customer using our software for this, not drone training, but something kind of adjacent. And certainly the accurate 3D data that is being collected by drones to create this ultra accurate 3D virtual environment, that's the perfect place to train the drones. So so you're going to see you're going to see a lot of that. The ethics around fully autonomous drones is also incredibly interesting. And Mark Andreessen, who is one of the founders of Netscape Navigator, has he kind of opened my eyes with a talk he did about this. And you know, his point was that a properly trained AI will make much more accurate kill decisions than a properly trained human operator. Assuming the AI has enough data, it's just a matter of time. And that, that it kind of changed my perspective. And, and it reminds me of a Mark Chulko, one of my co-founders of BI Sim. You know, I remember being on a boat in Turkey with his dad, and his dad was a 747 pilot. This was probably I don't know, 12 years ago. And this retired 747 pilot was completely adamant that no autopilot would ever land a 747. He was completely adamant about it. And now it actually happens all the time. And we kind of trust these autopilots with so much and so many humans. And I think a similar calculus kind of applies here. And it is hard to tell if if a human is carrying a weapon and if that weapon has been fired, if the weapon is real or fake, if the weapon has ammunition or not. There is so much that should go into these decisions, but quite often it's, well, it looks like a weapon, so we're going to shoot. It turns out to be a film crew. I just think that we need to do a lot more research, and we certainly shouldn't be making policy decisions until we've done the research and really thought about what our adversaries are doing. So really interesting ethical questions, I think, around this. I think, Pete, you're obviously definitely more across this than I am, but it is terrifying, everything you just described, and that scenario, like the idea of like giving a one kilometer, kilometer square box to a drone operator and go send your 200 drones just to fly around the area looking, looking for heat signatures, then go through your kill-no-kill kill algorithm to decide whether to engage or not. It's, it's scary, especially from an infantier's perspective. From the test and evaluation perspective and in your experience, is there a direct connection? If you run a scenario 100 times and in every single scenario, the platoon gets killed by the swarm of drones, is there like that connection between the research dojo, as Colin says, and decision makers within a higher up in command go, actually, this is something we need to not look at in 20 years time or five years time or two years time. It's something we need to look at now because it, in reality, if it comes out, it's going to be catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, look at it this way, right? So right now, my understanding, I could be completely wrong, is that the way to defeat a drone is to use a big ass weapon, like shoot some electrical signal that cuts the link, the controlling between the drone and the operator. That's my understanding. 
could be wrong. If I am wrong, please get annoyed at Colin, not at me. <laughs> but an autonomous drone doesn't need a control link. It arguably doesn't even need GPS, right? Because if it has a, already a, a detailed understanding of the terrain, it can identify where it is from the terrain. And by the way, I think Dr. Adam Easton from Symcentric, he may have done his PhD on this topic. So that's the threat. The threat is a fully autonomous drone that's fully capable of navigating and making decisions on its own about what it's going to kill. Need I say more? Hmm. If our leadership within military organizations are not thinking about this problem now, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, right? Fair point. Like, you think China is going to invade Taiwan with humans? Do you really think that? No way. It is going to be swarms and swarms of fully autonomous drones that don't care what they shoot, potentially. There's a couple of announcements being recently made that the US DOD replicator, I think it's called. But the interesting bit is for years we've been saying, ah, well, we can counter mass with uh, technology and being cleverer and tactics and things like that. And now we're going, yeah, but at some point we just need mass. And the only way we can get that, we can't have pink bodies. We need, yeah, AI. Like back to your point, Pete, you know, we could stand on a pedestal and say, well, this is not the right thing to do, but what will our adversaries do? Yeah, I'm just reading here a Bloomberg article about the Biden administration with regards to kind of AI safety. And I think that it's good that they're thinking about it. Let me put it that way. But there's so much misunderstanding about what AI is and what large language models are. It's not really a large language model we need to worry about, right? You know, so it's a completely different type of AI. An autonomous drone is just reacting on the images that it can see, and it's been simply trained based upon millions of images before. So it's not like a complex neural network. And so the AI I'm talking about with drones form is not necessarily anything that an LLM applies to. You know, maybe it is. I mean, I'm far from an expert, but the military needs to consider this completely independently. And I would be encouraging them to use game technology to begin the training process. You don't actually need to turn it on, but, but training the AI algorithms that can do everything from kill other drones through to identify human targets, it needs to start yesterday for the reasons I've outlined, in, in my opinion. And, and I, I just have to say, I don't know anything. Like I'm, I'm not secret cleared. I'm just a, an Australian living here and working in the US, reading a lot and thinking thinking about investments as well that I would make. So yeah, that's just my opinion, but um, I hope we move quickly. That's a good point to probably leave it on, but I, I was at an unrelated conference a, week, a few weeks ago, and one of the slides they put up was, look, we're a really interesting intersection of cloud compute, which has been around for that. So basically we can just, we insert money, we get as much compute and storage as we want. The algorithms are there and you've got the application layer, something like a, either a VBS or game engine or whatever. Now you can do things we haven't been able to do because in the past you have to build a supercomputer when you can just raise it with this cloud infrastructure and do stuff with essentially infrastructure as code. Yeah, I don't see militaries from my perspective, leaning into cloud as hard as they should. You know, I, I guess, you know, what, what the cloud provides is scale. In, in, the, in the short-term future, it provides scale. So instead of doing a single server that can support 1,000, 2,000 AI entities, we can do a cluster that can support tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And so what you end up getting is lots and lots of very high fidelity entities reacting. And one of the interesting problems that has never been solved when it comes to virtual collective training is this realistic city. So let's imagine New York and New York gets hit by some kind of attack. And all of a sudden we need to get military people to the center of New York while all of the civilian population is trying to get out. And right now, I don't know of anyone who's simulating that kind of scale because you get these effects where, for example, certain roads will be blocked, others will not be blocked. If you just aggregate everything, you lose the detail. And the detail matters if you're trying to get a convoy through a crowded street. 
You know, so there's many types of simulation that we can't do now that we could do through the scale that cloud provides. And yes, there'll be mathematical modelers and experts that are listening to this and going, well, of course, you know, I've seen the dots running around, big city simulation. What are you talking about? It can't be done. Yeah, sure. But a dot is very different from what a human being needs in a virtual environment to make decisions. You know, so it's the intersection between constructive and virtual simulation that we do incredibly poorly even now in 2023. And that's what cloud potentially can unlock. That's certainly important. I'm not sure if I'd call it unlimited compute. Cloud is expensive. You know, so I, I just it is really important to acknowledge that. And that really does matter. I see militaries around the world deciding not to leverage a cloud-based architecture because of its cost, especially if you need graphics cards in the cloud. Uh, so there's the cost benefit still isn't quite there, I think, for most military organizations, at least on the on the training side. I'm encouraged by initiatives like the US Army SD. I'm encouraged by SSE. I think it is there in the UK. But I do worry about the pace because we have adversaries that are moving quickly and may not have the same kind of limitations with regards to having to pay you know, a commercial entity in order to, <laughs> to implement these types of technologies, right? My question is more around the TME use case as opposed to the training use case. Got if it. you want to yeah, build something absolutely. rapidly for a trial. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, when we've done the analysis, it, it doesn't make sense to just play your game in the cloud when you may as well just build it locally yeah, for training. But that's really interesting and it gives us a lot of food for thought. I was really interested in where we go from training to actually solve emergent threats. And that's kind of, to me, a next level for where the technology goes. Yeah, we need to invest in a more, re I hate the word realistic, but I, I could say more realistic virtual battle space. And, and, and I'm not saying that ours is not like that, but it, it's bigger scale. You know, it, it's really a bigger scale. And this, like in the US Army, they call it convergence, which is the convergence of constructive sim like OneSaf with virtual sim like VBS. And all of a sudden, you know, being able to have that kind of fidelity allows you to see things that abstracted away when you do things at the aggregate level, right? So that's why I'm excited about US Army SD is because for the first time we should have that. And all of a sudden within TNE, we should be able to run that a thousand times at a fidelity that's never before been possible. And then we can start right down, put a human in the loop, almost to hold the AI to account in some ways. And then we can test it a hundred times with humans in the loop. Same scenario and then validate some of those conclusions that were made purely by the constructive sim or in the constructive sim. So there is a really interesting capability ready to be unlocked. It just requires some investment and, and cloud is the key. So yeah, I'm really, really excited about that. Well, I think I think that's great. I think we'll leave it there because that gives our listeners enough to, to think about. But thank you. We'll catch up soon. But thanks for coming on. No, I really appreciate the time and thank you for doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, that went down the rabbit hole, <laughs> the dark rabbit hole. <laughs> pretty rapidly towards the end and so like to tell us what you think pete <laughs> where do you think it's gonna go mate <laughs> and fairly petrifying because i don't think he's wrong but i i think the views are in lots of well in some areas those views are not going to be popular and it's it's how do you balance the need for maintaining parity if not ahead of your potential adversaries constrained with ethics and again using the word constrained is debatable conversation there as well so what, what what do we do colin if you've ever been comfortable with the concept of war then i think you need your head red yeah none of this should be easy it's all a terrible idea if we found a way to get rid of it then i'm sure we would have so yeah we should need to tackle some of these challenges head on um yeah. if we try and ignore them i hope they go away it'll just catch us up and that's a really good point. And again, probably not a popular view, but some of the footage coming out of Ukraine, almost all of it pretty much without fail, is horrific. 
And I think you only need to watch a bit of that footage, a full, you know, a few a few snippets of that footage to understand that war is hell, truly hell, not just a statement. It really is horrific. But if we are forced to go to war, better to have a bigger stick than the baddie. Otherwise, you're going to get hit over the head and that's, and that's not going to be good for anybody. So, no fair point. We might be biased, but that's where simulation can help. I think that was the point. The peak point is there's a lot you can do to try this with without getting dangerous or dirty. And then you go and rehearse it. And there's a lot, there are a lot of technologies that we can use to sort of, whether it's wargaming or, or understanding the, the interactions and any combat threats. Um, mm-hmm. We do have a technology. I just feel we're not, people are thinking about it, but we're not currently making the best use of technology that can help us. I would love to sit and have a sprint with, I don't know, a two to three week sprint with some of the greatest minds in terms of outside the box thinking within warfare and a dev team who can quickly mod a simulation platform and then soldiers that came in to then, you know, talk about and discuss and then war game out some crazy concepts very quickly and iterate on that. Within the realms of reality, this could be made if something was made. And I just think that would be a very valuable thought exercise if it isn't already being done. Well, you just give me an idea for a new episode, Sam. I'll okay. Thank you. Boom. You're welcome. Mic <laughs> drop. End of the episode. Anytime. See you next week. <laughs> Great. Well, I enjoyed that. It was great to talk to someone who quite literally was in at pretty much the start at the start of Games for Training and hearing his passion that he still holds for it is wonderful to hear. Also, what is interesting, not just passion, but also that, you know, you can't hide that, you know, that percentage of frustration associated with the energy and the emotional energy he's had to invest to get the industry to where it is today as well. I totally agree probably too much now if you want to keep up with what's going on with our episodes uh, you can follow us on linkedin and also go to the war the website to the warfighterpodcast.com if you want to catch up on some back back episodes and things like that and it's also available on all your favorite podcast platforms isn't it tom are you trying to steal my job here colin mate that's, that's, that's just my that. job someone does that <laughs> someone makes that happen it's easy who's that <laughs> all right well this is the last episode from we probably should mention it this is the last episode before christmas in the new year so just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll be in, we've got some really exciting, interesting outside the box episodes coming up for the rest of the season. It should be quite interesting. Bye.